Welcome to Artful Conversations, a podcast about arts and cultural management. I'm Anita Latham. And I'm Katrina Ingram. We interview leaders who help shape the world of arts and culture, sharing their stories, insights, and observations. Welcome to Artful Conversations. I'm your host, Anita Latham. Today I have the pleasure of discussing cultural policy and urban regeneration with Dr. Dave O'Brien. Dave is the Chancellor's Fellow in Cultural and Creative Industries at the University of Edinburgh College of Art. Dave did his PhD in Psychology at the University of Liverpool, looking at the European capital of culture, and has numerous publications in the areas of culture and creative industries. Welcome, Dave. Hello. Thanks for uh, inviting me to uh, yeah to talk about uh, culture and cultural policy. Can you sum up your current role as the Chancellor's Fellow to give us a better understanding of this position and how your research relates to that role? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty kind of uh, fun sort of grand title, uh, Chancellor's Fellow in Culture and Creative Industries um, at the University of, of Edinburgh's Edinburgh College of Art. But essentially, it's a kind of research fellow position um, that uh, transitions into being a sort of regular um, academic member of staff after uh, sort of a period of a, of a couple of years. So at the moment, um, I'm working on a bunch of different projects uh, that are related to kind of cultural and creative industries. Um, so one of them is a kind of a big project on inequality, uh, which is publishing some stuff. Uh, and is also running a kind of public engagement um, or you know sort of impact program uh, with an organisation called the Barbican in central London, um, and also with a charity uh, called Arts Emergency and an arts commissioning organisation called Create London. And then half of my time at the moment is seconded to the British Parliament, uh, working on inquiry about. Uh, the social impact of engaging in, in culture and sport. Um, and I've got a bunch of other kind of smaller things um, going on that are about uh, kind of cultural and creative industries. So, yeah, that's how that kind of relates to that grand uh, title. Okay. And, and one of the other things that you've got going on is you have a podcast called New Books in Critical Theory. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, that kind of came out from um, – me listening to lots of podcasts and having a conversation with uh, Marshall Poe, who edits the overall New Books Network. Uh, he kind of said, do you want to host the channel? So I thought, yeah, that might be quite interesting. Um, and that was three, maybe four years ago uh, when that happened. Um, and it's basically kind of an excuse for me to talk to authors about books I'm interested in reading. Um, and yeah, it seems to go kind of pretty well. Uh, it's got a sort of a reasonable uh, audience and it means I get to, you know, kind of uh, read books that are, that look interesting and, and I think will be kind of, you know, good for conversation. Fantastic. Um, you've got such a depth of knowledge and there's not enough time uh, on this show to talk about every aspect of your work, um, but I'd like to focus on cultural policy and urban regeneration which are two major topics of importance uh, that also hold great personal interest for me. In relation to cultural policy, there is not one definitive answer to what culture is. In your book, Cultural Policy, you outline the interdisciplinary approach to understanding culture. 
Can you explain how you define culture and why this might require an interdisciplinary approach in order to understand it? Yeah, sure thing. So um, in the book, uh, which is uh, a couple of years old now, I kind of talk through uh, two different perspectives on culture. One, I guess, is kind of uh, maybe an artistic um, set of meanings and the other is more sort of anthropological. And I guess that kind of corresponds to a couple of key thinkers. Um, and we, we can unpack this by thinking about, on the one hand, we might think about culture as kind of the way human beings interact with each other. Um, so, you know, everybody has culture, you know, culture might be a, a way of life as the uh, kind of Welsh uh, Marxist literary critic Raymond Williams would talk about it. But then on the other hand, I, I guess when we talk about culture, we think about it in terms of artifacts or uh, products, you know, maybe kind of experiences. We think about paintings, films or whatever. And that's much more, I think, bound up with the idea of culture as being art forms. And then this carries with it a set of, I suppose, judgments um, about culture being, you know, those things which are, are maybe good as opposed to um, other things which are kind of marginalised and not given uh, the kind of status of being legitimate um, or maybe, you know, kind of high art. And we might associate this with a longer uh, kind of lineage, maybe, you know, from kind of Kant onwards, but through, again, you know, a British tradition of literary criticism um, that talked about things in terms of being, you know, culture is, is like the best that's been thought and said in the world. Um, so, yeah, they're the two, uh, I suppose, maybe frames. Um, there are lots of other ways you can kind of think about culture um, and talk about it, but I found those most useful uh, when outlining uh, where my book was kind of uh, going to go, uh, where it was going to talk about. Okay, so so how does this definition of culture then relate to cultural policy? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it lays bare one of the kind of big tensions um, in cultural policy, not just in the UK, but often in a range of different countries around the world. That on the one hand, cultural policy is about uh, fostering, you know, kind of great or high art or excellence but on the other hand uh it's about bringing you know kind of entire populations in you can layer this on uh to kind of other modes of cultural policy or other functions of cultural policy which are often to do with things like building national identity which has you know a kind of inclusiveness and an excellence element within it or the more recent uh, stations of cultural policy, which is to do with things like economic impact or, say, social impact, like, you know, uh, criminal justice programs or education programs, things like this. And those two sort of um, ways of thinking about culture are often, you know, quite hard to reconcile. Sometimes it works in terms of excellence for everybody, um, which might be, you know, a kind of uh, government or arts council in the countries that have arts council slogans, but often, you know, what's thought about as excellent is related to is assumed by particular social groups or is only produced by specific uh, social groups along axes of, you know, gender, um, ethnicity, social uh, and economic status, class, disability, sexuality, these kinds uh, of demographic characteristics. Okay. So um, from your perspective, what are the major priorities and considerations when creating new cultural policies? Yeah, I, I think this um, question really sort of 
ties into that that tension about how do you think about cultural policies that are sort of open to everybody and are non-exclusive. Um, the academic Lizanne Gibson has quite a nice uh, kind of turn of phrase when she says, you know, if you're going to make decisions about, say, funding or about, you know, what kind of uh, culture deserves state support, then you're making decisions that inevitably exclude or include some social groups. You make, you know, particular kinds of culture legitimate or not legitimate. But then at the same time, artists, filmmakers, musicians, you know, they're all driven by some sense of the value of their work. Um, having interviewed lots of creative practitioners, none of them say they want to make bad work or they want to produce rubbish, you know, or they want to do things that don't kind of have value uh, in a variety of different ways. So, you know, promoting excellence uh, is really, really difficult in the context of making decisions that are about, you know, kind of legitimizing some forms of culture and maybe marginalizing or even implicitly making judgments about the kind of um, worth or not of other uh, forms of culture. Yeah, it's, it's um, it, your statement's really interesting. In Edmonton, we're currently going through a rewrite of our 10-year cultural plan. So the Edmonton Arts Council is currently doing that and they are endeavouring to reach out to as much as the community as they can to shape the new plan the old one's called art of living and they're trying to shape the new one for the next 10 years which is an, an interesting thing to do to write a policy for 10 years when you know as you talk about when you're promoting excellence and um you know as the world moves very quickly technology moves very quickly and it's kind of that interesting element of who's included in a plan when there is some technology that doesn't even exist yet that may impact on that plan. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other thing I should have said as well is, like, we've been talking in, I suppose, almost kind of theoretical terms about culture and cultural policy. There are really practical terms about, like, well, who's going to pay for this? <laughs> you know, like, where's the money going to come from? What kind of working conditions are, are you know, kind of our artists, filmmakers, etc., going to be uh, enjoying or not uh, in cultural production if it's funded by the market or funded by the state or funded by some combination of both or funded by, you know, civil society or, or whatever. And then how is it possible to kind of um, create these models um, that maybe, you know, fund things in a sustainable or long-term fashion when it might be the case that, you know, audiences will change quite rapidly because of digital technology. Modes of cultural production might change quite rapidly because of digital technology. Um, it might be the case that, you know, the kinds of experiences that we'd like to see as excellent in, say, the theatre become very, you know, kind of costly to stage or maybe become so cheap that it's difficult to kind of make a living um, on the back of them. So, yeah, I mean, you've identified something kind of really important that then ties back into a big question about how public policy allocates resources. Yeah, which is really interesting. And I don't think we'll touch that on this interview. Um, but, you know, we may get back to you for another day. So in relation to that, what do you see as the role of academia in furthering the development of creating cultural policy. Uh, for example, is there a role 
um, for academic research and bridging the gaps between policymakers and creative practitioners? I mean, that, that's a really great question, and it's one that the UK is kind of struggling with um, as um, the context for doing academic research becomes increasingly um, influenced by the idea of being you know, public or having impact or you know, having a kind of social value. I suppose there's maybe three things to say. One is in terms of directly providing evidence for uh, decisions about cultural policy. So that might be doing, you know, analysis of large sort of social surveys. It might be, you know, doing work with cultural producers. Um, I suppose the kind of practicalities of feeding into the policy process, which is often driven by quite uh, numeric, um, often um, economic forms of analysis. Second could could be um, in the way that um, academic research theorizes particular issues um, in ways that maybe don't directly get cultural policies to kind of change immediately overnight, but transform the context um, for cultural policy thinking. So we've seen in the UK over 10 years um, a change in how uh, the Arts Council, in England at least, thinks about audiences, going from thinking about them really problematically as having a kind of deficit if they're not engaging, you know, kind of thinking about audiences as people who basically like need to be engaged, uh, talking, unfortunately, in terms of, you know, kind of areas being maybe like cold spots for cultural provision, um, you know, this kind of language, to trying to think much more about, say, co-production um, for um audiences that aren't um engaging um with the sorts of culture that ace tends to fund i mean that's not entirely the kind of responsibility of academics um this is stuff that's gone on in kind of individual art forms as well but obviously there's been a lot of academic discussion theorizing these um models of you know what an audience is you know um what a kind of you know kind of engaged cultural citizen might be and then the third one, which I think doesn't really get uh, much attention, uh, is in sort of training and developing people who work um, in cultural policy and also, you know, kind of in the, the arts and cultural sector more generally, uh, particularly through things like arts management and cultural policy courses. You know, a lot of the people who take those um, courses, particularly at master's level, will go on to have um, policy focused jobs whether in organisations or in government. Um, and, you know, they're quite influenced by research-led teaching. Um, and I know kind of, you know, um, obviously I'm a research fellow at the moment, so I'm not teaching on any specific courses. But uh, when I did at previous institutions, uh, lots of the people who were taking our master's courses would would end up kind of, you know, taking or making decisions about cultural policy. So that that's another important way that research gets uh, disseminated almost in a kind of like long march through the institution sort of way. Yeah. One of the um, phrases that you used was cold spots. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So, I, I mean, th this is a really problematic term and um, the Arts, Arts Council in England, you know, definitely doesn't use this term anymore. And it, it was quite kind of informal idea. But if you look at, say, the northeast of England, that has uh, much lower rates of engagement with Arts Council England-sponsored culture, but also there are big swathes of it for a variety of different reasons um, that don't have um, kind of 
the same levels of cultural provision as say some of the major cities um, do even you know somewhere like kind of Newcastle in the north of England which has a big sort of uh, hinterland has um, you know a kind of uh, I suppose um, lower level of cultural engagement and lower levels of, of cultural provision for its broader hinterland when compared to like uh, Manchester or London um, so yeah I mean th- this is a kind of um, it's a term that sort of makes sense when um, you're thinking in terms of, well, how do we get pe- more people to go to the kinds of things that we're funding? But it doesn't make sense when you're thinking about culture in an anthropological term of people, you know, have and do culture for them doesn't mean that they're, you know, um, kind of missing culture. It doesn't mean that it's a, a cultural cold spot in which they live. And as I say, you know, that kind of casual term has really thankfully kind of gone um, from arts council language it's something they really you know kind of don't use and 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 you know really sort of trying to uh, stay away from there's a program called creative people and places um in england that um sort of addresses the cold spot problem but um has moved away from that language and and sort of that mode of thinking as well yeah it's 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 an interesting one because it's um it's certainly a phrase that uh, has a built-in assumption to it that um, is driven around almost prescribed culture into you know rural or remote areas by uh, very built-up urban areas to say this is what we are prescribing is what culture is you know that kind of ticket buying culture mentality where uh, it removes like you say it's an old phrase and it's better that it's gone because it kind of removes the acknowledgement of as humans, we do and we are culture, and it's embedded in our lives. And what we might not buy a ticket for it, but um, you know, gathering around uh, and playing ukuleles and singing some songs with a bunch of people down at the pub is culture. Um, you know, we don't buy a ticket for it. Yeah, I mean, cultural policy is full of, of these kinds of uh, assumptions, and I mean, some of it, as you've identified is about rural uh, versus urban. Some of it is about different social status groups or different levels or different varieties of education. Um, in, in the UK, the kind of classic issue is, is you know, social class and how it intersects with things like gender, ethnicity, disability, sexuality, um, to give, you know, a particular kind of um, legitimacy to specific cultural forms um, which you know get funded and get you know sort of state support yeah so what conversations are needed to guide uh, policy making now and in the future do you think yeah it's, it's a good question this I, I think you know that on the one hand there's the kind of radical moment of thinking about um, how particular canons in literature theatre in film in music are being critiqued, the sorts of inequalities that are embedded within them and then replicated, having conversations um, around, well, you know, what should we be keeping? What should we be changing? You know, who is excluded uh, both from consuming and producing around those those canons, I think is, is one thing um, that needs to happen. And that can be done in, you know, kind of an open um, and, and hopefully kind of participatory way. Then there's the question about money. Um, you know, what one thing that's come up a little bit in the north of England um, has been discussions about participatory budgeting 
um, and how uh, individuals and communities might kind of take control of their own budgets to fund things that they think are important, uh, culturally speaking. Um, and this, you know, presents radical challenges for organisations to, to sort of have a relationship or to feel like your community, you know, owns them um, and it's for them. Um, but then more, more broadly beyond these kind of inequality questions, there is a sort of a set of issues about um, how cultural policy can kind of, I suppose, step back or, or maybe when it isn't needed. And if it's possible for cultural policy to be um, not needed in ways that aren't about legitimacy or, um, you know, linking particular activities to being civilized or or legitimate or or whatever so you know the way markets do good things they provide you know really great bits um of culture you know like i'm a big kind of um, star wars geek um and you know there's an interesting relationship between um the actors you know bits of production etc arts education and then the production of you know billion dollar uh, hollywood enterprises some of which uh, actually was filmed in the UK and, and thinking more about, you know, kind of uh, relationships with markets and maybe, you know, the things that markets are good at um, is in kind of an area for sort of cultural policy, um, particularly government led cultural policy to grapple with. Yeah. All right. That's great. Um, let's move on and talk about urban regeneration. Um, it's kind of, you know, it has a number of titles. It's urban regeneration. Uh, in Canada, we, we talk about it as creative cities. Um, and have a creative city network, which is all about um, urban regeneration as well. But you've written extensively on urban regeneration, so let's take a moment to define this term for our audience. What exactly is urban regeneration, and why is it important and currently talked about so much? Yeah, I mean, that, that again, is a really good question, and um, it's a very loaded question, I think. So... In some often kind of policy-led discourses, urban regeneration is just about transforming uh, particular places that maybe um, have particular social problems like unemployment or uh, issues uh, with, you know, kind of low um, land values or um, issues about, you know, poor quality housing or, or crime. In more critical academic takes, often urban regeneration gets linked to um, much more problematic policy interventions, often which is to do with gentrification, which is about, you know, kind of moving different social groups out of places so other social groups can move into them. Uh, rent values or land values uh, can go up, property prices can go up, and people can make, you know, effectively lots of money um, in urban areas. So the term itself um, is quite loaded and needs to be used, I think, uh, with caution, particularly when uh, culture is involved. Um, cultural policy, I think, now is, is sort of well-established. Um, and often discussions about cultural policy um, come in ways that kind of take it for granted or take it as read that we're talking about urban regeneration policy when we talk about cultural policy. Um, but as I say, it, it's a very kind of politicised and, and uh, yeah, very very loaded term. So what is the role then of cultural policy in influencing urban regeneration? Yeah, it, it's a good question, this. Um, I mean, there are lots of different narratives um, and lots of different uh, ways of understanding 
that relationship and, and lots of different histories. I mean, one I, I, I can sort of pick up on, and it is only one amongst many, is the way that the rise of urban regeneration discourses in the UK, uh, particularly in the, the kind of early 1980s into the mid-1980s, seem to go in certain places uh, hand in hand with um, the use of culture, uh, whether it was, you know, kind of um, hoping for a particular artistic um, milieu to kind of grow and attract people, or whether it was, you know, having cultural festivals or cultural events, building cultural institutions um, and hoping that, you know, investment, um, higher tax base, um, et cetera, would, would come in. I mean, already there, you know, talking about um, urban regeneration going hand in hand with cultural policy and talking about things like the urban tax base or, or you know, property values or whatever, you can see how this would be contested uh, and how this would be a highly kind of, you know, politicised and in some places very volatile thing, um, particularly if we bear in mind that idea about, you know, everybody having culture and culture being this thing that, you know, kind of humans do by interacting. Um, the idea of kind of placing that in the context of can property developers make money um, or you know, can uh, we get, um, you know, a sustainable type of employment on the back of this can be yeah, highly uh, controversial. Yeah. So in the work you've done, uh, just to make this more concrete for our listeners, uh, can you share an example of a cultural-led regeneration project that you've seen? Yeah, sure. I mean, again, Liverpool, which is, is where I'm from, it's where I grew up. Uh, that's where I did my PhD. My PhD was about um, cultural policy and urban regeneration in the city. Uh, in 2008, they had uh, a year-long cultural festival, uh, which was this thing called the European Capital of Culture, which goes to two European cities um, every year. Um, and that was used, uh, I suppose, hand-in-hand hand with physical infrastructure development um, and various other bits of kind of inward investment uh, attracting policies um, to rebadge or, or rebrand uh, the city as both a tourist destination. Um, so what in Liverpool? What's that, sorry? What year was it in Liverpool? Oh, yeah, sure. It was 2008. Um, but it's important to kind of see 2008 in the context of um, really a kind of a decade of, of urban policy in terms of planning um, in terms of European um, funding, which is, you know, really important. Uh, the British government, certainly throughout the 1980s, um, was disinterested in many ways in uh, in Liverpool and its, you know, kind of uh, post-industrial or, should I say, kind of post-commercial um, unemployment crisis. The government did try various interventions, one of which was cultural, actually, a, a garden festival um, to try and kind of rebrand uh, the city. There were various bits of urban regeneration around a new gallery um, in the dark area. But 2008 was something that kind of brought all of the various strands um, of policy together um, and, and kind of gave a, a focus um, to lots of the different bits um, of culture-led urban regeneration that had been, been going on in the city. And, it, you know, it, it was very successful, I, I guess. You know, uh, I was part of an evaluation team uh, i was looking more at management um, but others in the evaluation team did some work looking at the, you know the economic impact um social impact the engagement you know both 
in terms of tourists and visitors, but also in terms of the local population. Um, but myself and other authors have argued that specific bounded local reasons and the idea of kind of transferring it as a, as a model uh, is something we should be okay. really, really cautious uh, about. Which leads into our next question really well. Um, there's some discussion around the efficiency of cultural-led urban regeneration. Um, governments in particular, you know, and especially because they are funding bodies, uh, demand to see measurements of outcomes and impacts. And in the article, The Social Life of Measurement, you stated short-term data cannot measure long-term outcomes. Can you explain a better way that we can think about how we measure the progress of this type of work? Yeah, I mean, it's worth unpacking uh, several things. The, the first is a sort of standard response to any question about how you do evaluation or impact evaluation, which is, you know, you have to start really almost before the project is thought about um, and you have to carry on uh, well after the project finishes. And that's something that tends not to happen uh, at all, really, with, with arts and cultural projects. Um, they tend to be evaluated after they finished with, you know, a kind of post hoc um, set of um, justifications or, or a set of um, questions asked. So that's like the kind of standard evaluator's comment. I think as well, there's the question of kind of, well, what do these cultural interventions seek to do? Um, and is it possible to measure them at all? Um, often the kind of proxy data uh, that's taken as, as kind of impact is really evidencing maybe something else or isn't appropriate for evidencing the claims, particularly of, or, um, of cultural organisations. And then there's the question about causality. So it, whilst, you know, the, there are kind of uh, big debates in the social sciences about how you can do, you know, kind of any sort of causal uh, claims um, for particular interventions. I think um, cultural uh, regeneration interventions are, are particularly problematic in this case because they're not kind of random control trials as we do we would with, um, say, a, a medical trial or, or something like this. They tend to be, you know, kind of major long-term policy interventions with little or nothing to compare to. There are some, you know, kind of synthetic comparisons you can do. Economic geographers. Uh, try and do this sort of thing um, but there is a, a kind of a broader question about well how do you kind of attribute causality based on the kinds of data you're likely to be able to collect and often even when you try and do that it's only something that gets talked about at the end rather than kind of built in uh, process for an entire project. Yeah so in 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 Canada we use um we use the same kind of uh, regeneration model, but it's called Creative Cities. And that's about um, some of our smaller arts organisations going, doing things in vacant spaces and activating those kind of spaces. But, you know, we also have a lot of our arts organisations who are looking at uh, community engagement as a role of uh, urban regeneration as well and that kind of, creative cities models um, um, and you know all of these people have to kind of measure as well and we've talked about measurement at a very at a very high end level um, I'm curious to know how this way of thinking about measurement 
might relate into those kind of smaller arts organisations in a more general sense um, and um, how they could apply a measurement of cultural engagement, urban regeneration to what they do in their programming. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's really a bit mean to um, expect people who are, you know, highly skilled as, you know, say, community artists or socially engaged uh, filmmakers or, or something like that um, to then know how to be social scientists who can do, you know, concrete, robust, uh, well-developed uh, evaluations. Um, and perhaps actually we should think about uh, not getting deliverers to measure and you know to kind of cost projects that have a separate bit of evaluation built in so we can bring people with with kind of expertise um the 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 more kind of i suppose you know practical set of things is the sense of just being kind of attentive um to things like well who is the audience who is turning up um in some ways the kind of um the rise of um metrics or evaluation uh, thinking has been very kind of controversial uh, and people have you know resisted it quite heavily but at the same time it does make people I think attentive to questions of but actually who is my audience who is turning up is it okay if I'm claiming to be you know a kind of uh, say a community filmmaker if I'm just speaking to people who live on the periphery of an area or one particular you know articulate um, well-resourced social group rather than another social group who, you know, may be quite disinterested or, you know, feel that, you know, my presence there is just as a kind of, you know, as a tourist or, or almost as, you know, someone who's treating my area as, you know, a, a goldfish bowl to be, to be looked at sort of thing. So, you know, the kind of um, attentiveness, I, I think, that comes from thinking about evaluations, thinking about, you know, keeping records, um, thinking about who it is that's turning up, that can be quite quite useful in you know sort of one person um, interventions. Well, the, uh, the other thing I the other thing I was going to say was technology can be quite useful here as well. And you know we, we've seen uh, particularly with the rise of uh, specific kinds of analytics, um, especially things like box office data, if it's collected um, well, uh, the possibility of not automating uh, questions about impact because obviously audience isn't impact, you know, that there are two very, very different things, but thinking creatively about um, the kinds uh, of engagement offered by, by technology um, can be, can be really useful in this context. Cultural vitality is another term that's used in reference to the work of urban regeneration. Um, and can you explain what this means and why we um, may want to pay attention to this? Yeah, I'll be honest. I'm not sure I can <laughs> because maybe we should have discussed this before we started. Um, but um, I guess it's something uh, like if I go back to where I started, that question of, you know, the kind of anthropological definition of culture, um, places always have culture, people always have culture. Uh, and I think there is a little tension in the language of cultural vitality um, that, you know, is kind of saying, well, what maybe what's going on isn't the right kind of culture or, you know, like um, it, it can be useful sometimes to resist, say, just the building of 
um, very expensive luxury flats or luxury condos, which have no people living in them um, to replace, say, you know, um, an area that used to be a, a hub for uh, creative workers or, or something like this. Yeah. And I guess it goes back to what we were talking about before, that um, assumption of um, the culture from the outside looking in, you know, um, making an assumption on cultural vitality of a area or a district is usually done kind of at a distance with assumptions built into it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and equally as maybe the more, uh, pernicious or problematic elements of urban regeneration slide into gentrifying programs, you can see the kinds of things that, um, are associated with an area having a kind of specific sort of cultural vitality giving way to, uh, you know, just being a brand or just being an advertising slogan, you know, just being a, a quote-unquote reason to invest um, or something like that. Yeah. Do you see um, before someone starts in community outreach or – cultural urban regeneration whatever tag they want to call it you know creative cities um gap filler whatever it is do you see that there's a value in doing a cultural mapping prior to doing that kind of activity oh yeah absolutely you know it's important to know what you might lose from any intervention um often interventions are carried out with the sense of we're doing something, so it must be good. Um, and it's very rare in public policy where you'll get a voice that says, actually, maybe new, doing nothing is the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, kind of cultural mapping um, as part of, say, you know, an evaluation or um, part of uh, a policy appraisal process, I, I think is, is really um, important. It's also when we come down to, you know, maybe the medium-sized organization level. It's also a mode of engagement as well, I think. Um, often uh, organizations can lapse into talking about, you know, the community or a community where they're based without, you know, sometimes without having proper um, sort of interactions um, or proper uh, relationships with the community, um, particularly if they're delivering a particular kind um, of cultural offer which maybe is only, or if not only, but is you know predominantly of interest to uh, one social group o- over another. Um, so you know the kind of activities you associate with with cultural mapping, the sort of I guess you know kind of social science that comes with it, can be useful for organisations as well as public policy. Yeah. So um, how 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 can policy resolve the obvious gaps? Um, that persists today in terms of work within the urban regeneration landscape? Yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely sure if it can, um, partially because of the tension between, you know, uh, making money and um, supporting particular kinds of cultural activities. For some cultural activities, making money is, is built in and it works. You know, if we go back to our style, demands of um, property development and inflation of property prices um, that is associated with maybe kind of uh, less, uh, if not less successful, but less kind of, you know, interesting, um, perhaps less democratically controlled 
urban regeneration. That tension means that, you know, all you have is is a brand or a slogan that remains of um, cultural activity um, plastered onto um, fairly kind of, you know, faceless um, architecture for long-term um, or sometimes, unfortunately, short-term uh, property investments. So, yeah, I mean, but public policy faces real difficulties here, and particularly in the context uh, where often there isn't that much uh, public money um, around. I know certainly in the UK um, there are big issues for uh, the cultural sector at local level as local authorities are forced to kind of reduce funding. The, the obvious kind of um, thing to say in response to all of that is policy as a manifestation or as a, um, I suppose, kind of response to democratic um, demands. And, you know, one thing public policy should be able to do is be representative of different communities and, you know, in a kind of Habermasian sense, maybe try and bring into dialogue or almost resolve some of these tensions. So that would be um, the, the kind of the thing. I mean, I, I'm not talking really about, you know, sort of consultations, which obviously um, are often skewed in favour of developers and, you know, in favour of kind of money making or, or whatever. Um, but I'm thinking more in terms of the ability to, you know, bring into dialogue different social groups and hopefully kind of produce, um, say, you know, planning documents, say, you know, a cultural plan for a city um, or, you know, kind of make practical demands on those social groups that, you know, stand to gain um, in financial terms from a um, an urban regeneration project that they involve others, give something back, make their development sustainable. Yeah. So um, one of the things that um, concerns me with the urban regeneration model is the um, it seems to be coming a fix-all to a social perceived social problem. So you know, it's that if then if you have a neighbourhood that is has uh, a high rate of deaths, drug use, um, you know, teen, teenage pregnancies. Even if that's in a in a rural community as well, the model of urban regeneration is being seen as a fix all. Um, and is are you seeing that at all in in kind of what you're looking into? Yeah, I mean, th- this it's tricky. This because there is a certain kind of temptation um that comes with cultural interventions um that if they carry with them the baggage of you know culture being the best um that's been thought and said in the world you know the idea of kind of like culture being transformative or civilizing or um particular cultural workers having had you know epiphanies to get involved um in delivering uh, cultural or creative activity that means that the temptation is there to say well of course culture can you know solve crime or uh, transform kids lives and often unfortunately you know cultural organizations will adopt the language of but we know this is true we've seen it often individual cultural practitioners will say well that's why i'm doing this you know it's what got me into things usually as a teenager that kind of stuff and at the same time obviously you know policy see this as you know kind of cheap a quick fix you know solving kind of urban crime um is you know hugely kind of difficult solving social isolation in rural areas um you know often requires lots of money building of infrastructure um you know it it might require a kind of 
a wholesale transformation of the history of a nation's form of social organization. So, you know, the offer of like, but we could just do some contemporary dance classes can be quite, you know, sort of uh, seductive. So there is, to, to go back to what we were discussing earlier, the need to kind of almost sort of rethink uh, the limits of culture, rethink of culture, and to be comfortable with the idea of saying there are certain things culture probably can't do, we don't have enough evidence that it can do it, uh, and also we want to be cautious about um, or, you know, entirely reject uh, placing this kind of demand on um, onto the shoulders of uh, cultural organisations, cultural practitioners. But there is... Yeah, there is the kind of like, I suppose, almost forgotten or often overlooked element um, of cultural organisations for, you know, very understandable reasons, um, being very keen um, to, to overclaim or, you know, to kind of um, get involved in, in the possibility of over-delivering because of their investments in the power of culture. That's great. Thank you. Um, is there anything that we've not covered today that you wish to add to our conversation before we wrap up? Uh, no, I mean, that's felt pretty kind of uh, comprehensive. I, I mean, there's there's obviously loads more I could say. And as with, with all of these things, you know, they're working on kind of similar things, some uh, with completely different perspectives. And, you know, I've just kind of encouraged people to sort of read around uh, as a subject there's, there's lots of, of good stuff out there Dave thank you for your time I really appreciate it it's Katrina and Annette in the studio my mind is blown by that interview with yeah. Dave O'Brien that was absolutely incredible one of the big things that struck me was his perspective on culture and this idea that culture might be the way humans interact with each other at one level, but on another level, we see it as the artifacts, the products, the film, the painting, and this idea of culture being bound to some kind of an art form that has this value judgment on it. Yeah. And that can lead to things being either marginalized or not legitimized and other things being seen as high art. And one of the examples that really came to mind for me is the idea of graffiti, which yeah. started out on the streets and kind of now is in galleries and is seen yeah. as high art. And it's kind of gone through that full cycle. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the really interesting things that uh, kind of came out in his talk uh, from that as well was cultural policy and the fact that we create cultural policy and in the mere creating of it, we're creating uh, inclusion and exclusion because, you know, the idea of cult of a cultural policy is to promote excellence in the arts. And, you know, why, like he said, you know, artists and filmmakers and musicians, they want to create the best that they can. But because we have to create a policy to promote the art in the, in the very nature of that policy, we're including and excluding. And I I had never thought about it like that, actually. I hadn't either. And it's something that seems really benign, policy. Yeah. Another thing that seems benign is doing evaluations. And yet there's this idea that how we evaluate things and how we evaluate cultural interventions in particular might have all kinds of implications. I know that's an area that you're really fascinated yeah, by. Yeah, very much so. And um, the cultural regeneration model is um, fascinating and it's a growing model. It's used right throughout the UK and, you know, it's growing into Canada and growing into Australia and New Zealand. And I think what's really interesting about that model and evaluations uh, is that 
are we ha- are we actually having a cause and effect change? Is culture really doing that? And one of the things that Dave talked about was the fact that in evaluation we tend to do it straight after the gig. You know, you walk out of a festival and someone's going, "Can you answer this question?" And what he's saying is, "Well, that's one way of doing it." But we actually sh- in culture we need to be doing legacy projects and doing legacy evaluations. So yeah, cultural regeneration is one of my passions, and it's about. Is it really affecting change? And, you know, we'll see as we move on and how that works. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And and the fact that we're not living in a, a lab, we're yes. living in real life. Yeah, it, always interesting. This show was created by executive producer Annetta Latham, producer Katrina Ingram, technical producer Paul Johnston, research assistant Raelle Lockwood, theme music by Emily DeFour, and cover art by Constanza Pasher. Artful Conversations is a production of McEwen University, all rights reserved.